The interchange is supported by Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation in energy management and automation. Schneider Electric has designed and deployed more than 300 microgrids in North America, which are more important today than ever, and they help customers gain energy independence and control while increasing resilience and reaching clean energy goals. Find out more at schneider-electric.com slash microgrid, or just follow the links in the show notes. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers, PV, storage, and advanced control software. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, California plans to ban new internal combustion vehicles by 2035. But are electric vehicles ready to take their place? Look, we know there are dozens and dozens more models of electric vehicles on the market. Ranges are increasing. Consumers like the driving experience. Total costs are creeping downward. But America's electric vehicle market is anemic. Dealers aren't pushing them, sales are flat, consumers aren't demanding them, and there are still very real infrastructure challenges. So in this episode, we're unpacking those trends in the context of California Governor Gavin Newsom's executive order mandating a halt to new gas-powered cars in 15 years. This is a conversation between my co-host Shail Khan and his colleague at Energy Impact Partners, Andy Lubershane. It's a very helpful, detailed look at the underlying trends that could complicate California's plans. In this conversation, they touch on the state of the EV transition, the state of technology and consumer habits, and the impact of lots of EVs on the grid in the future. And here is Shale Khan with Andy Lubershane. Enjoy. Andy, welcome. Thanks. So I think we have a lot to talk about here um, on both the state of electric vehicles in California and in the U.S. in general, and then, you know, looking forward from where we are today to potentially getting to 100% new EV sales in California by 2035 if California hits this this goal of the executive order that, that Gavin Newsom just signed. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine a, a sort of ripple effect into other states. So I think we want to basically have this conversation in three parts. The first part is where we are today. Let's uh, benchmark ourselves in the current state of vehicle electrification in the U.S. The second, and the barriers, I should say, to you know getting to more rapid adoption than we have seen thus far. Mm-hmm. Second step is um, what are we going to need from a technology perspective to get to 100% new sales being electric vehicles or something approaching 100% even? Like what are, what are the big technology gaps to the extent that they exist? And then the part three is... Uh, what is this going to mean for the electric grid? There was a wave of stories that came out when Newsom signed the executive order. The first wave was like, oh my God, what a big deal this is. And then the second wave was, wait a minute, how is California's grid going to handle this? Especially given the fact that we just faced blackouts in California a couple months ago due to a shortage of peak capacity. What happens when you add a ton of new electric vehicle load to the grid? So that's, uh, that's our three-part conversation Let's start with part one on the state of EVs in the U.S. today. How would you characterize it overall? 
You know, what's, what's interesting is this was kind of supposed to be a turning point last year and next. I mean, if you look at sales of EVs in 2018, they were starting to really ramp up. And then 2019, even, you know, obviously before COVID was a disappointment. Um, sales overall declined and the portion of the market that is not Tesla declined even further. So the only uh, auto OEM uh, to gain EV market share in 2019 was Tesla, making the U.S. you know kind of even more unhealthfully dependent, I would say, on on that one uh, manufacturer. Um, and you know, disappointing a lot of forecasters who were hoping for a ramp up towards the end of the last decade. Um, and you know, I think what's what's difficult about um, the timing of, of that slowdown in the market and then the further slowdown that was caused by COVID um, and all the results of COVID it, is that we were at a time when all of the other OEMs were just beginning to ramp up their efforts at developing and hopefully in the next few years bringing to market new EV models. And so we're at this point where the other OEMs are starting to make significant investments and in bets on electrification and one of my concerns, I guess, just up front about where we are in the market today is that those OEMs have made investments at a tough time for the market. And I'm afraid they might be you know, disappointed if they launch in the next year or two, um, even within three years, if the market's not quite ready yet to absorb that new, uh, that new amount of supply. And I'm not sure that's going to happen, but I, I guess I would say that makes it sort of a, a fragile time um, perhaps in the EV market in some ways? Would you agree? I think so. I think that uh, COVID came at an inopportune time for EV adoption. But what's been interesting is that there's a really clear distinction between the impacts of COVID thus far on EV sales in North America versus Europe. This like really, really clear dividing line where you know Europe and North America used to be, even just a, a couple of years ago, Roughly the same penetration in the in the sense of new portion of new vehicle sales that were electric vehicles. The U.S. has stagnated and actually gone down a little bit. So we're just to put numbers on it. You know, first half of this year, um, electric vehicles represented between one and two percent of all new passenger vehicle sales in the U.S. Uh, closer to six percent in California, which is relevant to this conversation. But one to two percent overall. That was also true of Europe a couple of years ago. Europe has meanwhile shot upwards. So even in the first half of this year, even in the midst of COVID, um, electric vehicle sales were gaining share up to close to 10% in the second quarter of this year, whereas in the US it has been flat. So it's sort of an indication that like it didn't necessarily have to be this way. But I do agree with you that it is a somewhat precarious time. On the other hand, I do think that we should, you know, you mentioned this wave of new electric vehicle models that are coming to market pretty soon. And there's a bit of a chicken or an egg thing in the U.S. with that because one of the reasons, one of the clear reasons that electric vehicles have not taken off yet in the United States is limited availability of the exact kind of model that customers buy in the U.S. So in the, of the top 20 selling vehicle models in the second quarter of this year, only four of them were sedans, and the other 16 are trucks and SUVs. Um, and we just don't have very many electric trucks and SUVs yet, but that's exactly what's supposed to be coming in the next few years. So in some ways, I sort of think it's, it may not be that 
those models come at a bad time because it turns out we don't want electric vehicles. It's there's so many customers in the United States who want those kinds of vehicles and if presented with an electric option may indeed pursue them. Yeah, you know, the the lesson I think from the difference, there's a bunch of lessons from the difference between Europe and the US. And and one of them is that the functional parameters of electric vehicle technology are not fully or even all that determinative of the outcomes in the market and that we've got the same technology in Europe and the US and and their big differences are consumer preferences in the US like you mentioned um we you know there, there's only a certain subset of the market that wants sedans or or tesla like sports cars um and and a lot of people want beer, bigger vehicle models and then you know in the Europe there's in Europe there's also pretty significant policy policy support in some countries for for EVs that you know reduces the effective upfront cost even more so than the US federal tax credit um, which is actually pretty substantial so we shouldn't say there's there's no policy support here in the US 7500 bucks is no is not nothing right and so let's let's run down the list of other barriers to adoption i mean this shouldn't be a too negative a, a an outlook, I think, because we'll talk about the future here, where there, there's still, I think, substantial opportunity for even somewhat near-term growth in the U.S. But let's lay out some other ones. So we talked about model availability. That's obviously one of the reasons that we've had um, limited adoption in the U.S. You, you mentioned subsidies, which on a relative basis is uh, as a barrier relative to, to Europe. What are a couple of the other ones? I should also note, you have a personal view on this, being an electric an electric vehicle owner, um, so you've experienced what you've described to me before as like the pains of EV ownership. So what else seems like it's a a problem at this point? Yeah, you know, there's kind of four. I, I think there's four functional technical variables that really matter aside from consumer preferences and policy and that, all that sort of culture stuff um, that that really impact the attractiveness of electric vehicles to consumers. The first is obviously upfront cost and and then also total cost of ownership. And, and that's where, you know, increasingly EVs are becoming, that's becoming less of a constraint to adoption over time. EVs are still, you know, a new EV is still a significant premium, oftentimes even with the tax credit, um, over a comparable ICE vehicle. But, you know, if we follow the battery cost curve down over the next few years, even for kind of standard lithium-ion batteries, we'll get there to the point where the total cost of ownership um, is at parity or even favorable for electric vehicles, depending on how you use it. Uh, and even and, and the sticker price should also be pretty close. Um, and so that gets us to all of the rest of these potential constraints, which in my mind mostly have to do with the battery and charging of the battery. Um, which is no surprise. Um, so, you know, the three big constraints there are uh, the the range of the vehicle on a single charge, and then two that have to do with how you can charge outside of the home. One is sort of how fast you can charge if you run out of that initial charge range and, and you still want to go further. Um, and the second is the availability of places to charge at that faster rate. And so, you know, if you think about, if you play forward the current trends in battery density and battery cost, I, I think we're also getting to the point where the the single charge range 
won't be as much of a hurdle for most consumers within the next three to five years. You get to the point where like a mass market EV could even even on the low end of the spectrum in cold weather, if the car is weighted down with various people and, and objects and it's muddy and windy, you'd probably have like, you know, 150 miles of range on a single charge, which gets most people anywhere they need to go on a daily basis and even pretty pretty significant um, trips, just not long road trips. Um, so really the question ends up being about charging rate and charging availability outside of the home. And, and I think we can talk a little bit more about technology limitations there. Yeah, that's a good segue. So just to recap section one here of the current state of affairs, we have at the moment relatively flat EV penetration in terms of new vehicle sales at 1% to 2%, 6% in California, um, but low overall and, and you know a slightly bleaker picture if you remove Tesla from the equation. But at the same time, from a technology perspective, some of the historic barriers, at least, that we've been talking about, things like range and upfront cost, are clearly and consistently getting better. And we have a wave of new EV models coming to market over the next few years, which are going to more closely align with the type of vehicles that people buy. So the, then let's transition to talking about the the next wave of challenges. So California now has an executive order. Let's assume it holds up in court. There's clearly going to be a court challenge from the Trump administration. Um, the executive order says banning new ICE vehicle sales in 2035. So we've got 15 years to go from 6% new electric vehicle sales to 100% new electric vehicle sales, which is pretty fast ramp, to say the least. You could also imagine, you know, we've seen this before in the case of renewable portfolio standards, for example, California is at the vanguard, but a bunch of other states follow. And maybe they don't follow with the same aggressiveness on the timeline or getting to 100%, but wouldn't surprise me if, you know, two years from now, we have a bunch more states that have set their own EV penetration targets. So let's assume it's not just a California thing. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the challenges that we're going to face going from 6% in the case of California to 100% or 1% to 2% in the rest of the U.S. to 100%. Where, where are the big barriers? Yeah, so talking nuts and bolts about it, let's, I, think, I think it helps to think about the market in, in tranches of customers. So there's a tranche today, and uh, you know, if, again, if we play this out a few years into the future with battery cost declines and battery density improvements, um, that is, is, I think, very, it's very feasible for them to go um, electric for one of their vehicles. And that is single family households that have uh, the ability to charge at home um, that are, are two car households. So if you're a two car household, you can get one EV that does the majority of your daily commuting for whichever person commutes more, um, and then still have a gasoline vehicle to fall back on for, for longer road trips. And that quells range anxiety, I think, for the vast majority of, of those households. So we get there. And, and I, I don't know what percentage of that of the market that is, but it, it's, it's sizable, um, plenty of room for electric vehicles to grow within that segment, but that obviously doesn't get you to 100%. So Beyond that, it gets harder because we get to uh, single car households who um, will feel range anxiety because even though they infrequently need to take trips that are 
longer than the single charge range of an electric vehicle, um, it, it is absolutely a factor that holds people back from making an investment, from going with an EV if they feel like even for three or four trips a year, it's not, you know, the, it's not going to be sufficient for them. Even if, you know, you tell them it, it makes more sense for you to rent a vehicle, right? Um, it's, it just doesn't work for a, lot of, for a lot of households. You know, the challenge with even what's called fast charging today is it's not really fast at all. I mean, a 50 kilowatt charging station, a, you know, a DC fast charging station still takes 45 minutes or more to fill my Nissan Leaf, which has a relatively small battery compared to a lot of the EVs out there, um, from close to empty to close to full. And so, and, and the, the problem with that is, is um, if you have one or two charging stations at a destination and you're an EV driver and you're counting on one of those charging stations to be available, you think, hey, whatever, I'll pull up at this Whole Foods and do a little shopping um, in the 45 minutes it takes to charge. Unless there is a, an airtight reservation system for that charger, you could end up waiting for 45 minutes for the person who pulled up before you and then wait 45 minutes for your charge. So essentially what that means is you just cannot count on charging outside of the home with the infrastructure we have today, which means range anxiety is very real. I think any EV driver has been in that kind of scenario and doesn't make that mistake again. They don't use their EV for the vast majority of use cases of trips when they feel like they might have to charge outside of the home. And getting back to the, you know, thinking in terms of tranches of customers, the next, the big tranche that's really hard to get to 100% on is people that don't, can't charge at home if you live in an apartment. Uh, and it's really difficult to put even level two charging infrastructure into, you know, older apartment buildings that can satisfy the the parking charging needs of everyone that lives in one of those buildings. So for those customers, for those consumers, they need to assume they're going to charge outside of the home all the time, which means the experience of charging outside the home, that the rate at which you can charge needs to be almost very extremely comparable, I think, to the speed with which you can fuel up an ICE vehicle and the availability of the chargers needs to be pretty comparable as well. Um, and, you know, that, that gets to another technical challenge for batteries, one that I think has a good chance of being resolved, but it's certainly a challenge today, which is fast charging a battery, a, a sort of standard lithium-ion EV battery today, even at that 50 kilowatt so-called fast charge rate, degrades the battery about twice as fast as charging uh, on a level two charger at home. And so if you're an EV driver and you're relying on fast charging at 50 kilowatts all the time, the, you know, based on the data we have today, the lifetime of that battery is going to be about, is going to be much less. And that, you know, if we go up to a faster charging rate, that puts even more um, stress on the battery in various ways. And so, if, you know, if we go up to 150 kilowatts or even 350 kilowatts uh, ultra-fast charging, which, by the way, is still significantly slower, like 10 times slower than uh, fueling at a gas station, the battery degradation is likely to increase even above what we're seeing today. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a big technical problem that needs to be resolved. Coming up, Shale and Andy are going to talk about the state of charging and what happens to the grid if a policy like California's goes forward and we get a whole lot more electric vehicles 
first, we're going to talk about our sponsors. We're brought to you by Schneider Electric. Now you can control your own energy future by reaping the reliability, resilience, and sustainability benefits of a microgrid with no upfront capital needed. Schneider has designed and deployed more than 300 microgrids in North America for municipalities to corporations to individual facilities. Schneider Electric makes your power work for you. And you can learn more about their energy as a service at www.schneider-electric.com slash microgrid. I know that's a long URL, so you just follow the link in the show notes. We're also brought to you by Next Tracker. During the time it takes to listen to this podcast, Next Tracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems and power plants around the globe. Those solar systems are becoming smarter and more dynamic and bringing higher yields for customer. And that is because of the True Capture Smart Tracker Control System, along with the design of the tracker itself. And Next Tracker is really pushing the limits of solar and storage power plants around the world. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Okay, so let's um, be a little bit more optimistic now. We've laid out all the challenges of electric vehicle ownership, or at least most of the challenges of electric vehicle ownership today. Um, but you know, you and I spend our day jobs looking at at new technologies in spaces like this, and I think have both found a really interesting array of potential solutions to many of these problems. So let's start with the the fast charging problem. There's a, a couple of different categories of solutions on the charging side and on the battery degradation side. You kind of walk us through like what the potential solutions are to the challenge of we can't charge a vehicle fast enough today, and if we do, it's going to degrade the hell out of the battery. Yeah, I, so like you said, there's there's potential solutions on the charging charger end, um, and then there's solutions on the battery end. So on the charger end, there's basically two ways to do it. One is you just increase the capacity of the charger. So you go up from 50 to 150, which Tesla is already doing with its um, fast chargers, and then potentially up to 350 or, or higher, hypothetically. Um, that introduces problems, like I said, on, on the battery end of the spectrum in terms of degradation. It also introduces problems on the grid end of the spectrum, which we can get to in a bit, but you have to, you know, moment, at, at any given moment be be pumping more electricity into the vehicle that increases the cost of the charger, the charging station itself. It also increases um, the cost of the, the grid service, the grid upgrades that are potentially necessary, likely necessary in order to, to serve that station. Um, and then the, the alternative on the charging end is actually not to charge the battery directly, but um, an approach that has been um, hypothetically toyed with for over a decade now, and there have been companies that have tried and failed to do this before, but battery swapping. So you charge the battery slowly and then swap out a battery for a fully charged battery uh, very quickly. Um, and, you know, you, you can imagine uh, without thinking too hard about it that, that that comes with some technical challenges of its own and some business model challenges in terms of standardizing on a, you know, a single form factor, for example. But you know, it could potentially be a, a good solution for fleets that can do that type of um, form factor standardization and can bypass a lot of the problems of fast charging that we see um, on both sides of the issue. Right. And there are some new attempts at a at battery swapping business models. The bigger one probably actually being in China, which is interesting. There's a, a big effort around battery swapping there. And then there's a couple of um, startups in the 
in the U.S. that are pursuing, you know, battery swapping strategies. Not like everybody has uh, PTSD from Better Place on this particular issue. So the the ones that are going after it today are going after a different version of it, either just specifically battery swapping for fleets, um, where you don't need to build out a battery swapping network to fulfill every person's you know, need to drive anywhere that they want, but specifically for fleet routes and things like that. But yeah, so battery swapping is one example. Um, and the other is to just drastically increase the capacity. Let's talk about the battery side then, because now your problem is you've got super fast charging, but you're degrading the battery. So if you increase the capacity of the charger, um, this is actually where I'm quite hopeful about next generation battery technology in, in two respects. One is... Um, improvements in the battery chemistry itself, in the design of the battery. Um, and that includes things like new anode materials, like silicon. It includes solid state electrolytes, um, potentially changes in, in cathode design as well. Um, many of which are really targeted towards improving the density of the battery, but actually come with ancillary benefits. Maybe they're not so ancillary, but certainly benefits in terms of reducing the degradation impact from fast charging. So that's on just to just to put a finer point on that for folks who are not deep in this world, the energy density is a big focus because it is directly correlated with both cost and range. So if you can make a really energy dense battery, that gives you a longer range vehicle and potentially also reduces your your um, ancillary costs. So that may be the primary focus, but as you're describing, some of the technologies that look promising from an energy density perspective also have promise on the degradation side. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, there have been so many attempts to, to build a better battery and so many um, venture-backed startups that have, that have really struggled in this market, as everyone knows, in the, in the past 10 to 15 years. Um, but, but I am quite hopeful about a next wave that's really been, been emerging over the past five years or so, and that's targeting commercialization probably somewhere in the middle of this decade um, in the silicon anode and solid state area. You know, it, it's really hard to figure out which among those companies will be successful today, but, but I'm hopeful that there's, there's enough well-capitalized and, you know, really serious approaches out there that a couple of them seem likely to land. You want to name a couple of the more prominent? Yeah, so on on the silicon anode front, there's Sila in I believe it's Sila. Sila, I didn't know that. Sila Nanotechnologies. Sila. I, I made the same mistake early on, but Gene Vertishevsky, who's the CEO, is a friend of mine, so I have to correct. Sila, it is. And then in in, in solid state, there's uh, QuantumScape, which is uh, one of the potential participants. It looks like in the SPAC train. Uh, and then ionic materials, uh, solid power. So there's a handful. And, and then uh, in terms of cathode design, actually, you know, there's not as many um, what you'd think of as startup companies, cathode design, and, and in particular, um, reducing the amount of cobalt um, that's required to get performance out of the cathode has been driven primarily by the large battery OEMs and, and vehicle OEMs like Tesla. And that there's performance reasons to do that, but the other reason to do that is cobalt. You know, like fifty percent of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's their um, 
huge issues from a human rights perspective. So you either have to, you either want to reduce the amount of cobalt that you're using, find a new source of cobalt, which there's some other companies trying to mine for cobalt in other places, um, or some combination of the two. Yeah, so definitely cost benefits. But so on on the battery technology itself, I'm I'm quite hopeful that, you know, we will see improvements in density cost um, and fast chargeability without such degradation. And then another area of, of battery technology, which is really in the way that the battery is managed once it's actually operating, the way that it's charged and discharged, sometimes adjustments in charging and discharging, even on a very minute level, can have a big impact on the rate of degradation of the battery, even given higher rates of charging. And, you know, we're actually seeing right now a a pretty big upswell in companies that have very different approaches, actually, to implementing charge management in in a way that reduces degradation. And again, you know, I'm hopeful, given the surge in investment in that area and the variety of different strategies that are being employed, technically, technical approaches, that, you know, one or two of those solutions, maybe more, will land. In some cases, they're actually quite complementary with each other. So I'm really hopeful on the on the front of limiting battery degradation. All right. So painting a positive picture then, over the next few years, we, let's just say we get dramatic improvements in model availability to start to better match the needs of customers. We get significant improvements in charging availability. We build out a bunch more EV charging capacity. We get significant improvements in charge rate um, that allows you to fast charge in a way that is faster than we currently think of as fast charging and that does so in a way that does not significantly degrade the battery and that the batteries are operated more intelligently in general. And let's say that as a result of all those things, uh, EV adoption really does start to pick up in the U.S. substantially. And we start to shoot up that curve that would lead us from 6% in California to 100% in California. Uh, That brings us to the grid and the issues that we will have to deal with as it pertains to adding a bunch of new EV load onto the grid in a very short period of time. Can you, I mean, I think in some ways, especially for folks who listen to this podcast, it's it's probably relatively self-explanatory what that challenge looks like, but can you put a finer point on it? Like what... What might actually happen? How much EV penetration does it require to start to cause issues you got to deal with on the grid? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's worth breaking down grid impacts into a couple of different categories also. Um, one is, you know, the grid impact of household charging, which will typically happen overnight. Uh, and then the other is the grid impact of charging outside of the house, whether it's at um, destinations like a workplace um, where you're expected to be parked for quite a while or whether it's, um, you know, fast or ultra-fast charging, uh, public charging. So let's start with ultra-fast public charging. If you want to go fast and you're charging at 350 kilowatts, there's not much you can do to manage that because the whole point is the consumer plugs in, gets as much juice as they can as quickly as they can. So we can, it's not that you can completely rule that out from a grid management standpoint, but if the goal is really about the customer's charging experience, it's really difficult to to reduce the rate, you know, at any given time at which they're expecting to charge. So that leaves you... Which basically just means you need grid upgrades. Right, right. Right. You add, you're adding 350 kilowatts of peak load for every one of those chargers. 
you know, that's not unprecedented. We have lots of data centers add, you know, orders of magnitude more than that. And we deal with it. It just comes at the cost of upgrading a bunch of infrastructure on the grid. Exactly. It's just exactly. Yeah. And and the nice thing about it is, although I'm sure there will be, um, you know, some uh, correlation, you know, there will be there will be spikes in times when people want to charge outside of the home in those public charging settings. It's not going to be nearly as highly correlated, say, as what's going to you know, quite quite clearly cause a, a problem from an overall energy standpoint, which is when people come home from work or whatever they're doing during the day, around the time the sun is setting in California, so around the time that solar energy is uh, rapidly declining, and people, if people naturally plug in their cars at home at that time, we'll see a, a huge load increase from EVs. Um, and so if, if there's no way to manage the decisions people make about when they plug in or when those cars are charged, that's where I see probably one of the biggest um, impacts on the grid that can potentially be reduced. And there are multiple strategies to deal with that, which we should talk through briefly. So one is just through retail pricing, right? A lot of utilities that are starting to see EV penetration are testing out EV-specific rates that are basically rate structures that... um, incentivize you to charge in off-peak hours. So it'll be your electricity will be much cheaper in the middle of the night than it is in that peak evening hour. And that, you know, provides you a price signal that you can use to charge your EV when the grid can handle it easier than than when it can't. Yeah. And I think if you pair that with something that makes it really easy for a customer who knows they're on that type of rate to delay charging, like a single button in your car that says, wait until X time, or ideally even better if the car or your charger has some sort of way of reading those rates from the utility, and the button just says, wait until it's cheap, um, that's that's the way that you could really get consumer adoption. So I'll, I'll admit, Shale, I have a EV rate available to me from central main power that I have not signed up for, which I really should because it would save me money. And that just shows how lazy I am. But that's kind of a lesson in, in consumer behavior. No, it, it speaks to the challenge. I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of evidence that a good chunk of customers will change their behavior if based on time of use rates in general and specifically with EV rates. But, you know, one, it's a, it's a little bit challenging to guarantee um, because you don't have control, you're just hoping customers will react. And two, not everybody will do it. And if you won't do it, then you know there's probably a significant portion of the population who won't do it. So then there's a, uh, I guess, a slightly more aggressive... I should interject there and just say, first of all, I'm going to do it. But second of all, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there, there's some onus on the utility or whoever the load-serving entity is um, that has a relationship with the customer, you know, um, maybe I'm I'm too in the weeds here, spending my days um, with utilities. But if my utility had noticed I was suddenly adding a huge amount of load overnight, which they ought to be able to do, and you know was pinging me more frequently, saying, "Hey, you should really sign up for this EV rate." You know, chances are I think that would help me do it. So I think there's some customer uh, interaction, customer engagement. There's some benefits to to investing in customer engagement on this front. So that's the perhaps less invasive or maybe invasive is the wrong word, but less aggressive version of managing residential EV charging than the more aggressive version is to have somebody 
other than you, the homeowner, exert some measure of control over the timing and rate of your charging, either by controlling your charger or by controlling the vehicle. Um, and that could, that could be the utility, doing it directly through a utility program. I mean, we see this with thermostats in lots of utility territories. You sign up, you opt into a program, get a free thermostat or a discount on a thermostat, and they do a little bit of management of your HVAC load. So you could imagine the same thing happening with electric vehicles. Or it could be a third party who is acting as an aggregator and you know has a contract with a utility or is playing in wholesale markets or something like that. Um, and is is controlling. What is your take thus far on the third party control of EV charging in the home? So you know, there's an argument that it almost has to happen um, that that kind of automated you know utility or other LSE or aggregator push button type of of charge management becomes necessary because you know if you think about the pure price based method, even then you face this wonky problem where if everyone plugs in and pushes the button that says wait till power is cheap and the utility publishes a, a price a forward price series and then power gets cheap at 8 p.m. and then all of a sudden every car decides to start charging at 8 p.m. you see this big surge in load like there, there's an you know there's as penetration increases there's value in coordination so that there's a smooth ramp up among lots of EVs and, and other distributed energy resources that are out there that there's there's a value in a centralized coordination function that sort of a pure price based signal is unlikely to provide and 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 I I just don't know I'm I'm frankly a little bit befuddled I think there's lots of ways that the market could go in terms of you know where the charging intelligence is located whether it's in the vehicle or in the charger whether it's primarily price based or more of just sort of a demand response dispatch signal and who's sending that signal? Certainly, every every angle is being tried right now out in the market, and maybe the answer is that we have a fragmented market where lots of stuff, you know, there's lots of options out there for customers, and, and I don't know. I don't know what way it's going to go. Yeah, I suspect it ends up being some combination of various things. Again, the thermostat market is probably a reasonable proxy here, though it's a slightly different dynamic. But, you know, with smart thermostats, there are retail price signals showing up more and more, more time of use rates. People can set their thermostats accordingly. Many people don't, but some do, and it shifts load. And then there are a bunch of control programs that utilities or other load-serving entities lead themselves and via their you know partners who are managing distributed energy resource management systems, they control directly. And then there's a bunch of third-party aggregators who are doing things with aggregated thermostats as well. So, you know, in that case, we have some of all three. And I think the result of that is that we have not fully leveraged the capabilities of smart thermostats, unfortunately. It is still a bit of a mishmash. But on the other hand, you know, in aggregate, smart thermostats are providing pretty significant load shift on the grid overall. So EVs are, you know, they're a whole other level of load. Um, So the, you know, the problem is potentially a lot larger, but it feels to me like we, because everything in electricity in the United States in particular is like a loose federation of different markets with a ton of different structures, we probably end up in the same place with EVs. I think, I think yeah, we're going to have a patchwork quilt, that's for sure. You know, if, if I think about this from the consumer standpoint, from, from my standpoint as an EV owner, 
there's a certain amount of sense in just making the point of interaction, at least with the consumer in the vehicle. I mean, you, you know, you turn off your car and it's just the easiest thing in the world to set some sort of, to, inter to interface with your charge management system, with the grid, to, to push that button in the car. It, it probably is about as easy to do so on the charger. I think, you know, it, th there is an opportunity here, though, for, for the auto OEMs to build in a feature that customers really like in the vehicle. Yeah, that, that'll be an interesting dynamic as this all plays out is what, how far into the charging management game the auto OEMs want to go. You know, some of them have toyed around with trying to build energy businesses, has not been super successful. Mercedes-Benz had Mercedes-Benz energy for a while. I mean, obviously Tesla has it, but Tesla aside, the rest of the auto OEMs have not thus far had much success getting into the energy game. It's a pretty different business. So I'm sort of skeptical that they'll go too far into it, but if they enable it and let third parties you know, manage it via API or something like that, then that strikes me as plausible. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and you know, the, the last thing you know, we didn't touch on is that third type of charging, which is workplace uh, or other kind of outside the home slow charging, destination charging, which, you know, if you're in California's shoes right now and you're thinking 100%, probably ought to be a pretty big part of the solution because it's charging in the middle of the day when you're going to have a lot of solar energy, probably excess solar energy otherwise. Um, you want people to charge then to soak up as much solar as possible. Um, and there's not really a technical or technology solution to that problem. It's really, a, you know, about incentives and um, culture and how to encourage workplaces to, you know, install charging stations, level two charging stations. Right. All right. So overall, what is your level of confidence that California is capable of going from 6% to 100% in 15 years? Put me on the spot, man. <laughs> uh, I think they'll get there. I mean, 100 percent is always hard, right? Um, right. But if we're talking, if we're talking the eighty twenty rule, I certainly think they can do it. You know, if, if if we've learned anything from, you know, renewable power mandates over time, it's always easier to uh, once you put the mandate in place, it's always easier to achieve those goals than I think people expect it's going to be. So yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. Well, good to end on a positive note then. Let's uh, close it out there. Andy Luvershain is the Senior Director of Research at Energy Impact Partners, where I work uh, closely with Andy. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Really fun. Always a pleasure. Take care. And that's going to do it for the show. If you want to hear more about what's going on there in California's EV market, you can listen to The Energy Gang. We're also going to unpack this announcement, talk about the politics and state of play. Uh, if you want to suggest some story ideas, hit us up on Twitter. You can follow us there. You can follow me and Shale. We love hearing from you. And um, you can also just tell us what you think about the show. We always like to hear critical feedback, positive feedback, whatever you want to say. And, you know, we say it every single time. It gets old, maybe. But I know that many of you haven't done it. So if you want to support us, the best way to do it is to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review or click through the links to 
the sponsors who are uh, helping support this show. Thanks a lot for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time.